morning. How's everybody doing? All right, I'm on. So we had uh, some issues with the little headset mic, so now I'm, I got the, the handheld so I can kind of, you know, you know, do that. I'll probably, like, do a mic drop inadvertently, just kind of throw it on accident. So, yeah, just bear with me. I'm not the best at speaking with this thing. So, um, all right. How's everybody doing? Good? All right. Good. Well, it's such a blessing to be with you here today. Um, just worshiping with you uh, through song, through prayer, um, but also through the preached word under the authority of his words, Jesus Christ. It's just so awesome to just soak it in and just look at what he has to say this morning with you guys. Um, y'all are my family. I love you. And if, uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm Tyler. Um, I uh, am an associate pastor here at Bethany. And uh, if you're new here, you're just kind of checking us out. And your roommate kind of dragged you in, or you know, you're just you're just here for whatever reason. Uh, I just want to welcome you uh, and just just let you know that we that we we care for you. We want to know where you're at in, in your walk of life and how we can just kind of come alongside you, um, so that we can all seek to be passionate and fully committed disciples of Jesus Christ together. Um, so let's um, let's pray together before I, uh, we get a little too far ahead. Um, let, let's humble ourselves before our Lord this morning. If you can bow your heads. Lord God, we just come before you knowing that you are everything that we need. And Lord, I pray that this time this morning, that we don't waste our time this morning talking about all this other random stuff when you have such a a feast presented before us in your scriptures. And I just pray that right now we can soak it in, we can uh, eat it up, we can just um, know how much you love us. In what your gospel means to us in a really, really deep way. And Lord, I just pray that you change the hearts of these people. You pr- I pray that you change my heart. That you, that you turn it more like you. That you mold me into more like you. And that goes for everybody here. We, we, we love you, Jesus. We want to pursue you right now. We want to um, get to know you. We want to uh, listen to what you have to say. So um, uh, we love you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. And all of God's people said. Amen. Awesome. Well, I want to start by getting right to it. I want to start with a quick question. And that question is this. What is everything worth to you? What is everything, all things, worth to you? All right, let's move on. So we're going to be in Luke 14, 25 through 33. Uh, that's the passage that we're looking at. And, and uh, if you want to open up your Bibles to that, that'd be great. If you don't have one, um, take one of the Bibles underneath the seats. We want to give that to you. We want to uh, uh, have you challenged by it and just read it. Um, be, be, just soak it in. Um, listen to what God has to say through it. It's amazing. So this passage that we're going to be looking at specifically, what it says and and what it calls us to do could very well make us either uh, kind of boil over in frustration towards God or just be in such an amazing sense of awe and praise towards Him. So I I hope the latter for you, um, that you you can find that divine sense of awe and praise towards Jesus because of what we're talking about. Um, So here's what he's going to ask us. The point of the whole passage, here it is. He's going to ask you and he's going to ask me, are you serious about following me. Are you serious? Are you serious about being my disciple? That's the question because here's the deal. There are tons of people in the world that claim to be disciples of Jesus. There's tons of people around us uh, that claim to be followers of him, especially in our North American church context, right? 
And, and then we seek after him in ways that he never called us to seek after him. In the comfort of our lives and in the security and comfort of our bank accounts, we kind of um, just, we would rather come to Jesus when it's most convenient to us, essentially. Rather than on his terms, rather than when he calls us and he wants us near. Uh, and this is exactly the issue that, uh, that Jesus presents to us today. Are we serious about following him? That's the question. Uh, are we constantly, this is another way to kind of phrase the question, are we constantly living in the reality of our salvation? And the reality of our salvation is this, that uh, our salvation costs us nothing, but it costs Jesus everything. Everything that he did on the cross, that cost him everything. So that's the good news of the gospel, but, but what... We don't have to do anything then? Is, is that, no, uh, don't get too excited. Um, as we look deeper and deeper into the richness of the Bible, we will see time and time again that our salvation costs us nothing. But if we are serious about being a disciple of Jesus, it costs us everything. A disciple, that costs us everything. Salvation, we can't do nothing about that. We have nothing good to offer in terms of salvation. That's one of the greatest paradoxes of our faith, that while we can do absolutely nothing to contribute to our salvation or the atonement for our sins, we are called to live in the reality of our salvation every single day, offering everything to him in response of that as an act of worship. So I want to... I just want to be honest, uh, just start off with honesty. A lot of my days in my life don't look like that. In my past, in the present, a lot of my days haven't really looked like that. See, a lot of my following Jesus rarely had anything to do with me actually facing the condition of my heart. Right? And when when Jesus humbles us and he reveals our hearts to us, at least for me, it gets really ugly really fast. Like, he just shows the parts of us uh, that that we don't ever want to come in contact with. And so in that moment, when Jesus goes after the heart, I sometimes do like this trade-off with him, right? I say, Jesus shows me his heart. He says, um, this is what I can give to you. And he exposes my heart. And then I'm like, oh, okay. Well, here's what I can do, Jesus, um, to help my heart. Um, I'll memorize scripture. I'll uh, listen to worship music. I'll, I'll read my devotional like every third day or so. You know, I, I got too much time for that. Come on. I mean, we're just, you know, I'll, I'll read some godly books, We'll just, you know, I'll try and fit some time in there, but, when, but the time I'm giving you, man, I'm going to give you my all, right? And on and on I go. So I kind of do this bartering with God, right? The God of the universe. <laughs> and we receive his heart when we humbly come to him. That, that's the truth of it. Coming to Christ is a radical thing. That's just how it is. It's not just some surface level heart makeover or, or some sort of heart like repair. It's a complete and total heart replacement. A whole transplant. It's not just a status change before God, but it's a complete transformation before God. He changes us. He gives us a new heart with new desires, with new love and just great passion for what he has passionate about. So we're going to be in Luke 14, 20, let's get to the passage, um, 14, verse 25 through 33, and it says this. 
Now, great crowds accompanied him. We're going to stop right there. That's pretty good, right? I mean, there's a bunch of people. They're all going to come to know Jesus. And, you know, it's going to be awesome. A huge revival that's going on in here. But uh, the, the, the funny truth about this, um, at least in, in our context, uh, most churches today are so, so concerned with church growth in the numbers that come in, right? I mean, the more people we have in this building, the more successful our church is. It's kind of the way what we think sometimes. But we're going to see that Jesus is always concerned with kind of how to sift out the followers of Jesus that are kind of uh, surface level. Kind of those lukewarm or um, not so committed from the devout, like you walk through fire, I walk through fire sort of disciples. It's just kind of how it is. And you're going to see uh, what's about to happen here isn't what I call church growth strategy. What he, what he talks about, I would not consider church growth strategy, uh, not in the slightest. So Jesus, he continues to say this, um, and he turned and said to them, hey, Eric, <laughs> if anyone comes to me, it does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. And yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise... When he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if he can't do that, while, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And listen to this right here. This is like it. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Wow. The question that Jesus is asking is, are you willing to count the cost? Are you willing to count the cost? Are we just okay with playing church? Like this passage is really, really serious stuff. Like there's no easy way around it. Uh, trust me, I wanted to find an easy way around this one, but uh, it's not possible. Jesus is going to be brutally honest right now. So, so what I want to say right from the beginning is it, if this is your first time to Bethany or you've been here, you know, a couple of times, I want to have you know that we are a church that are so fully committed to preaching the Bible. We love this book. We love what it says. We are committed to teaching what it says. And our goal and our mission is that we uh, don't give you any sermons that where we kind of pick and choose the verses that we want to share just because they make us feel a little bit better. You know, it's more uh, relevant to what, you know, what's going on or something. We want to preach what he has to say at all times. So we're passionate about many things here, but this right here, this book, um, if we believe that this is the Word of God, then we definitely don't want to mess around with it, essentially. We want to be passionate about being faithful to what He says in His Word and just let Him speak for Himself. So, um, 
the deal is that hard teachings over time, the, the really tough teachings that you know, change our hearts, over time, hard teachings create soft, humble people. That's just how it is. But with soft teachings, that stuff that's surface level, that stuff that's kind of um, you know, happy-go-lucky sort of teaching, that's going to create hard people, unrepentant followers of Jesus, and prideful followers of Jesus. So we have to deal with these hard passages. And fortunately, we're doing one right now. So let's dive into this and um, humbly and willingly seek out what God has to say. And I want to do so uh, by going through what I'm going to call the four marks of a true disciple of Jesus. Four things. And I derived them from a pastor that I used to, uh, at a church I used to go to. And um, they're very similar, but I, I got most of it from him. Uh, and it was just an incredible message. And I hope it's the same for you. Um, the first thing that makes a true disciple of Jesus is a true disciple of Jesus places Jesus above all other relationships. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me... And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. She cannot be my disciple. Now this is something we're going to have to deal with because Jesus teaches the opposite of this all the time, right? So let's let's deal with this. Uh, Like earlier in Luke, he said um, that we have to love our neighbor like we love ourselves. But now we have to hate them. Is it like loving them with some sort of hate or hating them with some sort of love? I'm kind of confused. Well, the answer is clear that we're not being commanded by God to hate the people closest to us. To like loathe them, right? But he's making it abundantly clear uh, that we have to be so careful that we don't take what is good and that we don't take what is lovely in the world that is around us in our relationships and make those our ultimate And then we destroy it. Jesus says, you cannot love your family more than you love me and still be my disciple. There's no commitment in that. You cannot love anyone more than me and be mine. And this is huge and it's true. For some of us, our families, they're like idols to us. And the worst thing is, is that most of the time we don't even see it. And guys, when your family is your idol, your authority, and your major influences in this world are your family and not Jesus. I don't think that's how it was meant to be. He says, if that's true, you can't be my disciple. That's hard teaching. It's like pulling right at the strings of my heart. I'm not going to give you my family, God. Really? Is my earthly family more important than my life, in my life, than Jesus? So what we're talking about, the way Jesus is comparing these, these words love and this word hate. We, we know this much, at least, um, that he's talking to a primarily Jewish audience. Uh, this crowd that he's talking to, whether they were actually Jewish or not, the context that they were, he was talking to, they were very Jewish mindset. It was a very common religion around uh, in, in that time. And, and the way that he uses these two words is called a Hebraism. 
And it's a weird word, but it basically just means it's, it's the unique way in which the Jewish people in their time um, meant words like love and hate, maybe a little bit differently than how you and I would say them. So when they wrote it, it meant something a little bit different. And when they say it, it means they ex- it expresses a little bit more preference. So like this love and hate means it expresses preference. A good passage that shows us this is in Malachi 1 and 2. We're not going to read those. Uh, but it's repeated later in Romans nine thirteen. God says this. He says, Jacob, I have loved. And Esau, I have what? Hated. Esau. I have hated it. It's not talking about God hating and loathing and like despising Esau. It simply means that God gave his promise and his blessing through Jacob and not Esau. It was preference. And the best way, maybe if we, um, if there's more loose ends to it in Matthew 10, 37, who it says this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's about loving more and loving less. That's essentially what this love-hate concept is conveying to us. This, this is a call, then, to unshared love with Christ. Unshared. To love no one like you love Him. Placing nobody on that place. Where he should be. He's saying your love, the the love that that you give to the people around you, it starts with me, Jesus says. It It can't start out there with other people in the world. I want you to hate the idea of a love that starts out there when I am the source. Because God is love. And the people around us are not. God. So why do we seek the approval and love from them when we don't go straight to the source? Because they won't save us. The people around us won't save us. They make really lousy saviors. Your family makes really lousy saviors. And that's just the truth of it. And he's saying... That some of us need to hear that this morning. That if you're a Christian, your identity is in Christ. Like, your identity is in Christ. Not your parents' identity, not your friends' identity, but your identity. And oh, my friends, it's not a calling to abandon our parents. It's not that. He's calling us to just start with him. Just start with him. Make him the most perfect relationship in your life so that uh, out of the overflow of that relationship, out of the overflow of that love, then you can rightly love the people around you. You can appropriately love your family, appropriately love your friends, and make them your mission field. It leads us to the second mark of a true disciple of Jesus. And it is this. A true disciple of Jesus persistently dies to self so that they may live in him. Verse 27. um, Let's look at that real quick. It says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus says this, uh, and by saying, bear your own cross, he's basically saying, you must be crucified. 
Plain and simple. That, that's what the listeners uh, during that time would have heard, essentially. It, it would have been like him saying to us, bear and take up your electric chair. That's hardcore. Some serious stuff. That would be disturbing to hear, to say the least, right? A disciple must deny himself and then take up his cross. So the ultimate concern of this is am I willing to embrace God's will no matter what? No matter what. And then am I willing to follow him with all that I am? So if you're a Christian this morning, and I'm not, I'm not using the word Christian kind of in our, a worldly, kind of a loose term in the sense. If we are a Christian of the Bible, then we are dead to our former selves. We are dead to our old desires. We are dead to our old sin. Those things are dead when those former sins and those former things start to come back up in our lives. We stomp them down. The Apostle Paul, he writes to the Galatians and saying this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the faith, the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is true for every disciple of Jesus. You are no longer yours, you're his. That's a great thing. You want to know the quickest way for a Christian uh, to become miserable? It's when you're living in sin and you're living in your former life and you're just gasping for air because you know it's there. You know there's new life. You know there's freshness in Jesus Christ and you're just staying in it, but you're not willing to grab onto the hand that's willing to pull you out of it. I don't know if, if you've ever been, like when you're a kid um, in a pool and your friends are like dunking you and you're like gasping for air and it's like, oh, it's like miserable. It's like the worst. You need air. You need new life. And you're just like reaching up. That's what it feels like. It's miserable. We get caught being idle in our former self and not willing to fully put on our new identity in Christ. And if you're a Christian this morning, you're no longer that old person. By God's grace, by his mercy, the Holy Spirit of God is in you. That's how it is. You are Christ's. He's trying to form you to his image for your joy and for ultimately his glory. You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. And that's awesome news. It's the best news. It is the gospel. Amen. So now that our old lives are passed away and we have this new life in Christ, here's what this means. This means that we are dead to self-centered living. And I'm going to put myself at the top of that list and say that I fall into the trap and I can persistently and easily become self-absorbed. That's just how it is for me. So what does the gospel message mean towards people like me when I am self-centered? It means that we're dead to self-centered planning and dreaming for my life. The things that I clearly want in my future more than I want Jesus. And I might use him to achieve those things. 
But what is it for you? Is it, is it money? Is it a stable career that's kind of uh, above the national middle class average income? Is it praise from your friends and your peers for how successful you are? How good you are at the particular thing that you're doing? What about your future do you want more than you want Jesus right now? And to be honest and open with you, if you saw the length of my list and the details of my list, past and present, I think a lot of you would be pretty disturbed by how big it is. How often I have to repent of that same sin over and over. Of putting my future above and beyond the Lord of my future. It also means that the gospel message means that we are dead to self-comfort, to self-medicating, to self-desensitizing uh, us from the true conditions of our hearts. We, we, we are dead to ourselves and we're alive in Christ. Does this sound radical? It is radical. It's crazy. We are alive to his desires for us that are so much better than our desires for us. We're alive to his will for our lives. And when we get this, when we get to the point where we know that we are, have nothing good to offer to a holy God, we know that we have all hope in him, all trust in him, and all glory given to him. And we get joy, we get peace, we get understanding, we get purpose in our lives. And it comes from here to die and to be alive in Him. Amen. So the third mark of a true disciple I want to look at is this. A true disciple of Jesus considers the full cost of following Him. So Jesus calls us not to just start well but to finish really well. And I think it's safe to say that up to this point, Jesus has made, he's made, been making some really strong statements, some really intense um, things. And it only gets stronger. So, so, so now Jesus tells us these two short parables. Um, the first picture that Jesus presents to us is a man that's building a tower. And so towers, at least in, their, uh, in that context, in a very agrarian culture, um, kind of similar to Gunnison, um, they would use their towers to watch over their flock. They would use their towers to watch over their, um, their harvest. Or to see if any enemies were coming, if there's any imminent danger. So to be successful in this, to building uh, this tower, the building plan has to be incredibly meticulous. And well thought out and prepared for. Otherwise, the builder, he's going he, he's gonna, to uh, get fired up about it, get started, get, just go full thrust. And then uh, he's going to speed through the Ikea assembly manual and, and then have no idea what to do. Have you guys ever put together an I- Ikea piece of, like even the simplest of tables, it's just, it's awful. <laughs> it's just terrible. And, and then, um, so this builder, he's left, right? He, without the right foundation, he's left. Without the right tools, without enough stamina to keep going, to push through to the end. And, then, and in the ancient Near Eastern culture that he was in, honor and shame was what you were known by. You're either an honorable person, 
or your shame, shameful. So by him not finishing this tower, he became a joke. He became the mockery of his uh, town. And it's, half, it's a half-finished tower that is unable to be used. So what does it take to finish this thing strong? We're talking about our faith now. How many of you start things and really get pumped up about it and you just get like really amped and then you get like halfway through it and then you just lose your ambition really quick? <laughs> That's me. Um, I, I, I do that a lot more likely, more uh, often than I am willing to admit. Um, I... <laughs> I... Um, one of the ways that I do it, I'm most notorious for, you know, finding really, uh, really big projects to do around the house, like paint the whole house in like two days or, um, you know, build this table or refinish it or something. And I get these huge projects. And I get so pumped up about it. And, and then like halfway through, like I have something else I have to go do. Like, you know, I have to go to work. I have to go meet with some people. And then I just completely forget about that whole job that I was doing. And I, I get so excited, stop halfway through, and it drives Quincy nuts. It's, <laughs> and, and, I mean, right now, our house is half-painted with frog tape all the way around, all the trim and everything. It looks perfect, you know, but it's halfway done. And it looks silly. But this is so true in our spiritual lives. It's not how well you start, but how you finish. Are you, are you going to Jesus because he just makes you happy temporarily or he, um, you, you get something out of him or what have you? Where, where, where are you at? Because nowhere in this passage says, oh, just pray a little prayer. You'll be good, right? Yeah, we pray a lot of prayers, but if it doesn't ultimately end in us being fully surrendered to Jesus, fully committed and fully converted to the person that he's wanting us to be, then why are we praying for it? And again, with considering the cost, this, this parable um, is about a man that does a voluntary act. He, he, he decides to build something. Uh, but the second story that Jesus shares with us is uh, an involuntary one. So he, the man goes to war obviously, and then he has an enemy, and, and the enemy's on his way to attack him. He can't control that, so it's an uncontrollable thing that's going on around him. In the text, it says this, or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliber- deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet great a way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So much like the first story, Jesus is reminding us that our own ambition, our own emotions can easily get in the way of the tasks and responsibilities that Jesus presents to us right in plain sight. We can get easily discouraged when the tower is not being built fast enough or we can easily become paralyzed by fear when we see enemies coming our way or imminent danger on the horizon. We can get Scared, but Jesus doesn't just say, hey, just pray a prayer. Don't worry about it. He says, set aside your own fear, your own doubt. Set aside the things and emotions that make the end seemingly impossible to you. Set those things aside and hone in on the fact that if Jesus began something in your life, he will, without a doubt, every time, carry you to its completion. He will. And in light of building a life that's radically founded on Jesus Christ, the um, late John Stott, he's an English pastor from the 20th century, um, 
he says this, and it's a super long quote. I like long quotes. They have a lot of meat to them, so bear with me. But uh, just, just see what he has to say. The Christian landscape is strewn with wreckage of derelict, half-built towers. The ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. You see, the result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, Large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be like uncomfortable, because who would want that? Uh, their religion is a great, soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life, while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. What he just said is uncomfortably true for me. What's even more uncomfortable is the fact that I see that same junk in my heart. And I hate it. If you see that in you, I hope... That it makes you kind of take a step back. Look at who this Jesus guy is. Look at why he's calling, him, calling you to follow him. And I pray by his grace that we would not be half-built towers, but be fully built in Jesus. Fully founded in Jesus. Consider the cost, my friends. What is everything worth to you? Is it worth giving up in order to receive Jesus? Who gives graciously every eternal gift? And so the last mark of a true disciple that I want to cover this morning um, is, is this. I'm going to end with this. A true disciple of Jesus must hold all things with open hands. Let's look at verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So everything in, in me wants to make this a softer passage, to be honest, less dangerous, less radical. And I'm just going to be completely honest. When I was uh, prepping over uh, and reading over for this for the past couple of weeks and kind of meditating on it and praying on it, I was just like, God, like, why that verse? That's so hard for me to grasp. And how can I teach that? And how can I speak that to people if I don't know how hard it is for myself? It's a hard truth. But if we really look at what it's saying, we just kind of see Jesus, and he's just wrapping up everything that he just said. 
Everything that he just said of making him top priority of our relationships, of bearing our own crosses, and dying to ourselves daily, and of counting the cost of following him. And Jesus says, well, the cost of following me is everything. There are no things in this world that will ultimately save you. There's going to be no relationships in this world that will ultimately save you. In fact, left alone, we can turn the most beautiful things in this world and the greatest relationships around us over, over time, we turn them into a dumpster fire. Left alone, I've said it before, we're not that good at being good. Look at the world around us. But when we're found in Christ Jesus, oh, he does the greatest of things through us. It's not our goodness, but his. So praise God, he makes filthy rags like me clean and new. Praise God. And I want to end uh, with this. Following Jesus is tough. It's a really hard thing. The cost is high. And the stakes are even higher. And these are tough truths. In our Lord's words, they're not um, completely uh, friendly, I wouldn't say. They're terrifying. They're frightening. They, they, they weren't very comforting. They were threatening to our personal lives. He's asking us to give up stuff in our lives, uh, but we don't want to. That's kind of how we're woven up together. We want to hoard and we want to hold on tight to stuff. He's saying, give those to me. Give me your life. And his invitation to salvation, while motivated by love and motivated by compassion, and he's filled with grace and he's filled with mercy, offering forgiveness, peace, and joy now and forever, it still calls out a great responsibility for us to receive that. There's no other way to define all of this but costly. It's costly. It really is. And if you, if you didn't think salvation was already a narrow door, I think you do now. He calls to go through that door. There's so many other doors in the world, but go through this one. It's going to be costly, but it's going to give you life. His gospel redefines everything that matters. Our Material things, our friendships, our families, our stuff redefines it. And if you're thinking this guy, Jesus, he's, he's just asking too much from me. He's asking a lot. In fact, he's asking for everything. He's asking for your whole life. So what, what is in it for us? Salvation, grace, love eternal joy, eternal purpose, eternal life. Is his grace enough? Is that life enough? That's the question that he asks us. Are these temporary things enough? Or are my forever things enough? Do you love everything less so you can love him more? And out of that love, we can rightly love the people around us, our families, everything. And I pray that you know everything in this world could never add up to the bounty that we find in Christ. 
his death, his resurrection, his gospel, everything that he has to offer. So in this time of response, um, we're going to sing another song um, together in worship. Uh, We're going to have a couple of people up here praying. Feel free to come up if you need anything. If you need any prayer about anything specifically or if you have any questions or anything, we want to know how we we can serve you in that way. So I want to pray before we get to worshiping. Lord Jesus, what you have to say is radical. What you have to offer is everything, and what you have to ask from us is everything. Lord, I pray that we are a people that can so easily hand over the things in our lives to receive what you have to offer. Lord, we know we can't do this on our own. We know that as we go through our lives on our own, we cannot find ultimate joy. And people leave us. People hurt us. The things in this world hurt us. But Lord God, you will not. Lord Jesus, you will not. And we praise you for that. Lord God, you are so perfect. You are so amazing. And I just pray that your gospel is just so engraved into our hearts that it actually changes us. That we're moved to love people in this world like you love us. Lord, I pray that we can start with you and finish with you. Lord, I pray for the brokenhearted people and for the people that think they're not broken. Heal us, Lord. Give us life. Give us your truth. We want to worship you right now. And all of God's people said.